do it, General. I'd say. I won't. Do it! Put your hand on the scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. As what? The world's greatest mass murderers? You cowardly bastard! You're not the voice of the people! I am the voice of the people! The people speak through me, not you! It came to me while I slept, Sonny. My destiny. In the middle of the night, it came to me. I must get up now, right now, and fulfill my destiny. Now you put your goddamn hand on that scanning screen, or I'll hack it off and put it on for you. I am confident that Assad's days are numbered. The world will not waver. Assad must go. We both agree that Assad needs to go. It is just further evidence that Assad has to go. He is no longer legitimate and that he needs to go. For the sake of the Syrian people, the time has come for him to set, step aside. Many people believe that the British Empire went down with the final lowering of the flag in British India all the way back in 1947. Unfortunately for both the population of Britain and the population of the rest of the world, British imperialism continued very much to be, as they say on the internet, a thing. So today in the episode what we're going to be doing is looking at one of the areas where the British Empire very much never ceased to operate and added in its provision of support to ultra-reactionary causes all the way around the world. Ultra-reactionary causes and movements and parties that very much serve the interests of British imperialism. Today we're thinking specifically and talking specifically about the British support for ultra-violent right-wing jihadism in Libya and Syria. In this we're joined by Dr Tara McCormack again at the University of Leicester to discuss the British role in the war in Libya and the fact that the war in Syria is sustained almost entirely by support from the British and the United States. Please stay tuned for the episode and be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more. Thank you. Tara, welcome back on the show. Thank you very much for asking me. So to, um, I want to dive into, first of all, the the, the period we're covering starts, to, my, to the best of my knowledge, begin really with the British response under Cameron to the so-called Arab Spring. Would you say that's, would you say that's accurate? Um, yeah, I guess yeah. so. I think to the extent that we can think that British intervention ever stopped. But yeah, certainly no. <laughs> Libya and then Syria mark kind of two very important cases. And to go to your later points it is also bound up in other moves to try and establish a little more authority over British foreign policy a little more democratic authority mm. and oversight over British foreign policy. Why don't we start then and go chronologically because both you mentioned there both the Libya and the Syria wars I would put forward the proposition that neither of which are very well understood mm probably by most of the people who sit in Parliament, never mind the wider population, which have been very poorly covered in the British media. And, when, and then there are more and more revelations coming about out about Libya and Syria 
that reveal that the government's narrative at the time and the media narratives were based almost entirely on either fictions or deliberate distortions. And that what has been done to both countries is nothing short of criminal in yeah. terms of the what has been done to the, the lives of the citizens of both nations. So let's start then, Tara, with Libya. This is a, portrayed as a spin-off from the Arab Spring. You have the fall of Zin Abedin Ben Ali in Tunisia. You have the fall of Hosni Mubarak in, in Egypt. And then you start to see protests breaking out, particularly in the eastern side of Libya, around Benghazi, which became famous uh, for various different reasons in the United States due to Clinton's involvement. So let's start to talk about that. Where does the British involvement in Libya at that particular point begin? And the motivations of the players involved, particularly like Cameron and other senior cabinet ministers? I think, as you know, that British involvement in Libya goes but, you know, quite a way back, we have, you know, the kind of grand re-embracing of uh, Gaddafi by Blair in the 90s. You know, Gaddafi renounces his nuclear programs. I've called you here to, today to announce a development of great importance in our continuing effort to prevent the spread of weapons of mass destruction. Today in Tripoli, the leader of Libya... Colonel Muammar al-Qaddafi publicly confirmed his commitment to disclose and dismantle all weapons of mass destruction programs in his country. He has agreed immediately and unconditionally to allow inspectors from international organizations to enter Libya. Libya has begun the process of rejoining the community of nations. And Colonel Qaddafi knows the way forward. Libya should carry out the commitments announced today. Libya should also fully engage in the war against terror. Its government, in response to the United Nations Security Council's Lockerbie demands, has already renounced all acts of terrorism and pledge cooperation in the international fight against terrorism. We expect Libya to meet these commitments as well. As the Libyan government takes these essential steps and demonstrates its seriousness, its good faith will be returned. Libya can regain a secure and respected place among the nations and over time achieve far better relations with the United States. The Libyan people are heirs to an ancient and respected culture, and their country lies at the center of a vital region. As Libya becomes a more peaceful nation, it can be a source of stability in Africa and the Middle East. Prime Minister Blair and I welcome today's declaration by Colonel Qaddafi. Because Libya has a troubled history with America and Britain, we will be vigilant in ensuring its government lives up to all its responsibilities. Yet, as we have found with other nations, old hostilities do not need to go on forever. And I hope that other leaders will find an example 
in Libya's announcement today. And uh, kind of Gaddafi is brought in from the cold. Um, now, following on from the Arab Spring, we have a really kind of peculiar, I guess, policy develops in the UK government that is essentially, I would say, one of hybrid war against mm. Libyan state. And hybrid war is really interesting because it's one of these buzzwords in international relations. And it's something that yes. the Russians do and the Iranians do and the Chinese do. But actually, we see pretty clearly that um, the British state has engaged in hybrid war. And I would say Libya and Syria are two really, really important um, examples. Of this. Yes. I think what we see in Libya is um, the British state essentially sanctions uh, funding of various uh, rebel groups, so-called, mm. uh, many jihadi groups. Uh, we see special forces are sent in to yes. these groups to fight against the government. And this all is actually in contradiction to the UN resolution which authorizes um, a limited, I'll say that in inverted commas, humanitarian intervention against mm. the Libyan government ostensibly to protect Libyans from human rights abuses at the hands of the uh, Libyan government. The British state is at this point very keen on essentially overthrowing Gaddafi but cannot do this in overt means, so turns to said special forces, funding of jihadi groups, and so on. Um, there's actually a very good House of Commons report, Foreign Affairs Committee report, published in 2016. I mean, it's good to the, to the limits that a government reports. Yeah. Good. But, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty hard-hitting in terms of the way that uh, government policy was very bad, uh, they would say based on incorrect information and so on. And we see pretty much a dis the disastrous consequences, you know, whereby Libya had um, recently slave markets, ISIS run yes. slave markets. As for the charges, which may, were three main charges, the air bombardment of Libyan cities, which, were, uh, which was proven false almost immediately and the international media had to admit because they came to Libya. An air bombardment is not something you can hide. Uh, secondly, the mass rape of 8,000 Libyan women. The country has been under control of our enemies and the West for eight years. Where are the victims and where are the convictions and where are the trials? After eight years, they haven't been able to prove any systemic rape of women during that time. And then uh, you have the uh, charge of killing 10,000 uh, innocent protesters in the first three days. Where are the names? Where are the bodies? At the most, they have been able to come up with 25 people who were killed in the first few days. We say they were armed. Some people say they were not armed. But 25 people killed is not 10,000. Well, just about that government report, Tara, because I think that's an important fact you've brought up there, because the I remember at the time um, that the the news was full of this propaganda about 
um, that Gaddafi's forces were closing in on Benghazi and that they were going to commit like a mass slaughter when they got in there and that intervention needed to happen now because otherwise there would be a, a gigantic war crime. And didn't the report actually find that those claims were mostly fictional? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so to, I really recommend people to read the uh, the report, the um, Foreign Affairs Committee report, because what we really see in Libya is a kind of slightly pound shop version of the Iraq campaign, where very much the you know presentation of mass human rights abuses and so on. And obviously, this is not to say that um, the Libyan government were a bunch of schoolgirls, quite far from mm -hmm. it, you know, but that the presentation was entirely at odds with reality. Uh, yes. And that the Libyan government intended very much a limited campaign to retake control of territory. And moreover, where it did do that, there were no mass killings, mass mm. reprisals, you know, at all. So, again, it, it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting kind of campaign that the government mounted. But there's a good article, uh, just to suggest to listeners, there's a very good article published, if you can believe it or not, by Mark Urban, the uh, mm. diplomatic and defence editor, published in 2012. And it's called In The Inside Story of the UK's Secret Mission to Beat Gaddafi. Um, yes. It was published on the BBC, but it's quite astonishing. And he details how the government, the British government, essentially wanted to overthrow Gaddafi. They could not do that via the UN resolution, which uh, allowed for limited intervention and thus turn to other means in order to achieve that. This was ultimately successful. So the British government did achieve what it sought to do, which was to uh, overthrow Gaddafi. And we're sort of living with the consequences of that. But it was, if you read this article, it was an explicit decision by the British government to overthrow Gaddafi. And there were fears about, well, how do we do this? You know, given the UN only allows us to do so much um, so, and this is Mark Urban, you know, this isn't some kind of radical. No, this is uh, the inside man in every yeah. respect. The thing about the, the Libyan campaign that strikes always struck me as odd at the time was that Blair had been making nice with Gaddafi yeah. and various, and the US government under Bush and early the early period of Obama had continued that process of bringing Gaddafi in from the cold. So what was it, do you think, then, that motivated the switch? Uh, because all of the people who were screaming for his removal, like Cameron, Sarkozy, Obama, had all had dealings with him. In fact, Sarkozy's dealings with him went far beyond anybody else's. And that's why he's disgraced and, as far as I know, still on trial for corruption. So what's the switch? Um, do we know, do we have information on why they made a decision to try and take him out? I mean, I... You know, uh, and we can obviously keep this in or not take it. I, I genuinely, I genuinely don't know. I mean, I'm not. Mm. Been, you know, it's it's the same. If we think about back to Iraq. I mean, mm. Saddam Hussein did not want to be an enemy. He didn't mm. want to not sell oil to the. Yeah, West. he was the CIA's man back in the sixties. You know what? Ha he didn't want to, this. To, you know, so there's 
so the, equally so with Gaddafi. In no sense was there any kind of a, a challenge, you know. And and I'm so I, I I genuinely don't quite get what what happened there. And in you know the common discussion, the common argument would be, oh, it's about uh, Libyan oil, even you know Libyan resources and so. On. But mm. again, this is a this is very much a sort of Saddam Hussein example whereby Gaddafi had didn't want to be that kind of radical figure anymore you know inviting the IRA into train and all the sorts of mm -hmm. stuff that earned him the enmity of the West uh, pre mm. um yeah really oh, good, yeah. good question I don't know this is one of the I don't you know I, I don't quite believe I yeah, I don't quite get that, the sort of the resource, the old sort of fashion materialist explanation for it, because it just doesn't seem to make that, it doesn't make that good sense, I think. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's probably something we'll discover in a declassified document in 50 years' time. It, uh, it, you know, turns out David Cameron had shares in the slave trade or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing would surprise me at this yeah. stage. Um, yeah. So we get then into the, the the Libyan war itself, which yeah. you you mentioned there was uh, Cameron uh, was looking to deploy special forces. They said they had the the license to provide um, air cover for the rebels. Then which and also it seemed to me that the mission kept expanding. Yeah. First of all, it was about defending the rebels in Benghazi from reprisals. Then it was about providing air support to what became a, a large-scale conventional rebel army that was dead set on conquering the country. So this constant changing and shifting of the priorities was reflected in um, the messaging the, the, the messaging in the media. The media was filled with, as far as I can remember, scare stories about the awful nature of the Gaddafi regime, uh, that... This needed to go that we had a moral responsibility to quote unquote do something. Um, and what surprised me was the fact that the government's talking points were repeated faithfully every single time. And there was never any pushback, nor did I, and maybe you have a better knowledge of this. I don't recall any questioning of who these rebels really were either. No, no. Uh, I... So there was the, 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 the narrative from the government was completely accepted and it was never questioned who we were funding. So do you, can you talk a little bit, Tara, about who exactly was it that the government was um, funding and helping to arm? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is has been one of the most extraordinary things. But I think you, we can see this, uh, you know, post Iraq. One of the interesting things to digress a little bit is that post Iraq, rather than the media becoming much more focused on critiquing the government and picking government claims apart, we actually see that it's become far less so. Mm. Um, you know, and that's, again, that's a sort of diff discussion that I don't really know how to answer what has happened. We've seen uh, any kind of critical voices when it comes to foreign affairs squeezed out. I mean, The Guardian, even sort of 10, 15 years ago, was a quite a different place in terms of discussion of British foreign policy. Yeah, um, you, you had critical reporting even in the even in papers that were supposed were pro-war when it came yeah. to Iraq. There were still critical narratives being printed within them. 
yeah, but but this is now something that um, seems to be less and less. And that was so uh, in the case of Libya, and that was equally even more so that has been the case in Syria. So in the case of Libya, for example, Britain uh, supported, you know, fairly hardcore jihadi groups with the idea of, you know, it was all okay as long as these groups were fighting against Gaddafi. Um, mm -hmm. And it is to me quite astonishing that there has been so little consideration of that uh, in the media. But once we get into Syria, as I said, that's even more so where we have uh, support for really astonishing, you know, hardcore Salaf Salafist groups, um, the mm. sort who, you know, if they turned up in the middle of London would sort of constitute a national emergency. Um, well, it depends if they were coming to bomb or coming to buy. Yeah, you know? All right. but uh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So the 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 other thing that, that one of the the, the, the whole area of um, the Libyan story has yeah. been underreported and misreported. Yeah. And uh, including up to, you know, who were these rebels were, who they who was going to be in charge of the country afterwards, what happened to the country? Because is the the open slave markets, yeah. which uh, something which hadn't been seen there since I think the days of the old um, Maghrebi pirates uh, 200 years ago. Um, all of that is reported, but it's buried on the inside of a website somewhere or in the, in the deep in the folds of a newspaper. Um, the, the other thing that comes out of it, which should have been a gigantic scandal, is Salman Abadi and his brother, and they, they're known as the Manchester Bomber. Um, and the, his story is an extraordinary one, isn't it, in terms of who he was, who his family are, and their long-term relationship with the British government. So can you talk a little bit about that, Tara, yeah, please? Well, as, as far as... Uh... As far as we can tell, or as far as I can tell, while, when Theresa May was Home Secretary, it was official policy to allow British-based, British-Libyan jihadis to travel to and from Britain and Libya because this was part of our effort to fight against uh, Gaddafi. And... Mm. This, to me, again, seems one of the most extraordinary events. You know, I you expect governments to be brutal uh, in foreign policy, but this is this has been quite extraordinary. And of course, we know that um, the consequence was, or you know, quite the consequence was the Manchester bombing. Um, and it's mm. absolutely extraordinary that this was government policy you know, to allow this. Um, and there again, there has been no accountability. This is one of those things that's kind of known it's there, but it's simply not discussed either. Yeah, I, I was surprising that, I mean, Abedi got a, a lift home from Libya on a Royal Naval vessel, which they don't just give that to anybody. So they he they must have known who he was and what he'd been doing because yeah. they wouldn't just let a random guy on. No, on, no, on a military. No, uh, I mean it, it was all officially, it was 
a bl- an official blind eye was turned to hmm. um, these uh, Libyan British jihadis traveling to and from Libya. It's extraordinary. I mean, literally just allowed back into the country. So after over a decade of relentless war on terror propaganda in all the newspapers about, you know, there's a there's an evil bearded Muslim lurking around every corner. And here's a bunch of guys who do actually fit the description, although, you know, many of them didn't actually have beards. Um, And it's not only are they allowed back in, but they're allowed to travel freely to and from conflict zones. Exactly. All the things that we were told that the all those anti-terror laws built into the state machinery since 2001 was there to prevent Uh, and and blind eye turned completely. Absolutely, because we this was the pursuit of our goal to oust Gaddafi and that took precedence. You know, I don't think I don't believe for one minute that Theresa May would actively have supported the Manchester bombing. But the point, but what, you know, th- this was permitted because of this, broad, not the Manchester bombing, but the sort of travelling to and forth of the British Libyan jihadis was permitted because of the broader goal to overthrow Gaddafi. And I guess that, to take us to a sort of bigger discussion, one thing that has marked British, American, um, Israeli French policy, you know, since the 70s and 80s, as we know, has been the active support of um, radical Islamist groups against secular Arab governments. Libya is synonymous with terrorism, arguably, to many ordinary uh, people in uh, NATO nations. Let's go to the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester. What did it feel like? for you when you watch the carnage on television? Well, it's, of course, extremely sad, and it pains us uh, that ordinary people in the West have to pay for the crimes and uh, mistakes and blunders of their government. You see, when you try to manage a crisis, a crisis is by nature a crisis. You can manage it, but you cannot control it 100%. Sometimes it hits you back. As a system, because you are achieving your main goals, you have to bear these consequences and take them in as they come. The British and the Americans can very easily get rid of terrorism simply by just not supporting it, not funding it, not creating it. But they choose to go on. These are not secrets I'm revealing to you in this interview. This is known and agreed upon by all factors. We discussed uh, the the Libyan war, which obviously is a war which is still going on, but it's barely covered now. If we turn to Syria, yeah. this was another. This this seemed to be, as you implied in one of your previous answers, a gear shift towards a much more intense campaign. Yeah, and I think it's is it fair to say that the British government's involvement is almost from the start yeah. of the demonstrations in Syria, uh, that they are there in some capacity or another assisting? I, I would say even this, you know, even far more so than Libya, in which we did see significant uh, undercover uh, intervention. Yes. Um, I would say that Syria represents the most extraordinary hybrid war 
I would argue uh, that we have seen um, so far in that yes. Britain has been intimately involved. This is Britain's war as much more so, I would say, than the Yemen war. And we do see yeah. we see a little bit of coverage. David Waring at Royal Holloway, for example, writes quite a bit and gets into the Guardian and so on. But this what the British state has done in Syria is so extraordinary. You know, you're almost left wanting to ask, well, will the real real war stand up? Is there a war there without us? You know, um, from the start, Britain has and not just Britain. America, of course, as we know, has had a massive funding programme for so-called uh, rebels, uh, the Timber Sycamore programme, which yes. Trump, ironically, or not, not necessarily ironic, Trump shut down. Um, Turkey, uh, UAE, uh, Saudi have all funnelled billions, absolute mm. billions into uh, groups such as Daesh al-Islam, uh, Al-Qaeda um, and their various uh, uh, factions, um, ISIS. You know, this has been an extraordinary war. Um, Britain has played a really significant part. There's been some very, very um, interesting articles uh, of late from uh, Ian Cobain, who also used to write for The Guardian, but presumably mm -hmm. no longer too much. Is, uh, no longer well. No longer welcome uh, in Middle East Eye, which has had some pretty interesting articles on um, Syria. Um, and Ian Cobain has basically uh, reported that the British state has played the most extraordinary role in terms of funding uh, propaganda within Syria. So mm. Syrian journalists, Syrian activists. Yeah, yes have all been essentially directed, not necessarily knowingly, mm. certainly raises questions. And if you raise questions at the time, I can tell you as sort of denounced uh, figures such as Banner. Mm. If you remember the seven-year-old girl who was tweeting. Oh, yes. Great, yeah, yeah. Great English, you know, from the sort of middle of a war zone. Um, so it turns out that the British state, the MOD, has in effect been running Syria, running anti-government propaganda within Syria. Um, yes. And this is quite extraordinary. Added to that, we uh, have, for example, Britain has played a key role in supporting whatever you think about them. Um, groups such as the White Helmet. We know they have yes. been trained by um, an outfit, I think, called Mayday Rescue, which was yes. run by ex-military uh, James uh, Mysterio. I can't say his name. Yeah, he um, died, didn't he, in uh, Turkey yes. a, over a year ago. Yes, yes in uh, some mysterious circumstances. Um, so Britain has really played a kind of intimate role on the ground in the mm. Syrian war. And it's quite extraordinary. And that's before we even get on to what has happened uh, in terms of the April uh, 2018 bombing and the uh, OPCW issues, which we can 
Yeah. Um, so, but so just say this is absolutely our war. You yes. Know, I think um, there's a there's a quote from someone on about the Yemen war that you know it couldn't happen without us, and I think we can say that about Britain's role in Syria. You know, we have played an absolutely key role in pursuing this conflict. If we go back to the the origins, I mean, Cameron did try, as did Obama to get license to essentially do the same operation as they'd done in Libya, which was they, they wanted to do full-scale bombing. But in both cases, there was a, a rebellion in Congress and in the Commons right. in so what, 2013 that yeah, did thwart that, didn't it? So that's a really important kind of point as well. So in 2013, as you say, Cameron went to the House of Commons to ask for authorization to... Um, begin bombing the Syrian government. Um, there was a long, long debate and Parliament basically said no. And it's really worth reading the debate. It's on Hansard. Uh, it had a lot of really, really, I thought, extremely good points. People asked, well, who are we supporting? So actually there was some discussion. Mm. Um, there was, a, there was a, a letter actually sent to Cameron around the same time saying, you know, who we from MPs expressing concern about support for jihadi groups. Um, so Parliament essentially said no. Now this mm. said no. This uh, vote made changed Obama's plans as yes. well because Obama had been hoping for British support in. Um, from, you know, in military intervention against the Syrian government. But when Parliament said no, this changed Obama's plan. So essentially, after this, Britain and America turned to what we would call, if we were talking about Russia, hybrid means. Yes. Propaganda, funding of armed groups within the state, uh, and so on. Anything that was as... Uh, um, yeah, so so kind of uh, any any modes of intervention that are done by covert means, essentially. Yes, so we're talking um, the usage of um, special forces against uh, the Syrian government, the um, the funding and arming of these different rebel groups, uh, moderate or otherwise. Yeah. The also the usage of um, the British relationship with. Um, the Saudis and other Gulf states to enable uh, transfer of money and resources to um, these uh, to these uh, outfits. Um, is, is that a fair summary of uh, uh, what what was you were doing? Absolutely, and and that said, so that was all pretty. That that has been fair. Again, that's been one of those interesting things that it isn't. None of this has been hidden, or in that you know you can find just reports on this in mainstream media, but it doesn't become a big discussion. But now added to this, we've had the most recent stuff so from Ian uh, Cobain and Alice Ross, uh, that not only that, but we've had a, Britain has had this massive program of funding essentially. This leads to the really sort of slightly postmodern 
situation whereby the MOD will have been funding this, who may or may not have known this, probably many didn't know, within Syria, who will then have been relaying information back to the BBC as, you know, sort of approved yeah. sources. I mean, yes. quite extraordinary, the picture that builds up of our kind of role, both in terms of material and funding, and then in terms of uh, propaganda when it comes to yes. Syria. Well, you said something interesting in, in, in earlier on, Tara, which is, is there a war without us? Which exactly. is fascinating yeah. because without the British, American, French yeah. to a certain extent, and also I think the Germans have a role as well yeah. in the Syrian war, would any of these rebel groups last five minutes? Because oh, yeah. there seems to be a gigantic effort to keep these rebels, if they can't win, <clears throat> which they can't now, it seems clear, yeah. um, they at least want to stop the territorial reunification of Syria, don't they? Yeah, so that's been an interesting thing over the last couple of years, exactly what, you know, America has, as we know, stopped the big uh, programme of funding uh, the the so-called rebels, um, but has remained in a couple of pockets. Now, one thing that is quite interesting is I wonder if there is now a little bit of a shift in policy because we've had this uh, article in the Middle East Eye from Ian Cobain and Alice Rose about um, British propaganda uh, the day after there was also an article from someone criticizing uh, British policy with its kind of obsessive focus on um, Assad must go. So it may be that we're seeing a sort of slightly managed retreat from mm. it may, you know, from the focus on Assad must go, which, you know, has been pretty clear. I think once the government of Syria asked Russia to come in in 2015 and help it to fight ISIS, I think yes. it was clear to most people that barring World War Three, which I don't think anyone was quite up for, um, you know, Assad was not, the Syrian government was there to... Yeah, it was, they weren't going anywhere as long as they had one of the major powers of the world behind them. Exactly, um, exactly. Russian help and Iranian help. You know, and I think from that minute, from that point, it was pretty much clear that the balance was shifting and, yeah, we were just in it in a way just for spite, you know? Yeah, it seems, make a, no, that seems to be the case. They can't win, but yeah. they, they, it seems that there are people in the British government who um, seem to know that but not care yeah, um, but that they're going to... They're going to keep dragging this out as long as they can, presumably in the belief that they can get something out of it in any kind of conflict settlement. Well, there was an astonishing quote from, uh, sorry, the name is, I think it was the very, very recently American ambassador to Syria, even, uh, or former ambassador. Sorry, I can't recall immediately now, you know, basically saying we might not win it, but, you know, God, we're going to make sure 
serious offers for it. I mean, it was quite, it was quite an extraordinary... Quite... It's an extraordinary open confession, that, isn't it? That yeah. we're going to make sure that basically uh, they can't fully rebuild as a nation. Um, that it's, it's usually they dress all this up. And maybe yeah. this is a... Uh, Maybe this is this this leads me into the uh, um, a discussion of the uh, the the bombings of Syria yeah. that have gone on the uh, the West because yeah. this is leads to a, a huge scandal about the organization for the prohibition of chemical weapons, which seems to have been subverted. So let's let's go back then to these supposed chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Yeah. Now, am I correct in saying that the first of these Happens, does it happen in 2017, this first chemical, supposed chemical attack and bombing run? Well, what I think in, um, I'm trying to now recall the exact dates, um, in 2013. So what seems fairly clear is that the Syrian government plus uh, jihadi groups have used chemical weapons in the past mm. and in fact one of the agreements in 2013 after parliament refuses to it, um, bomb because this was also a, meant to be a response to a chemical attack yes um, but Russia brokers a deal with the Syrian government whereby the Syrian government agrees to uh, give up all its chemical weapons. And obviously this is a sort of, we get a slightly different discussion about what exactly happened um, and so on. But, you know, it's pretty, both sides do have chemical weapons. 2013, there's a there's supposedly a, a deal uh, brokered. You know, I think we can say that during wartime, no side comes out well. No one gets out clean. No, and I don't, you know, as someone who's always been against Western intervention, I don't feel the need to justify that by saying because, you know, X, Y and Z are angels. They're not. But that's, a, you know, Saddam Hussein wasn't. But I, I was... Well, you, you don't need to take a position of being for uh, Gaddafi's Islamic, Islamic version right. of Arab nationalism or the Ba'ath Party in Syria or Iraq to recognise what I regard as a basic fact, which is whatever your opinion of those governments is or was, life for the people there has been made worse for what Britain and the United States have done. Right. Um, so no matter what was there before, what has come afterwards is uncontestably worse. That's right. And fundamentally, we have no right, uh, moral or otherwise, to... Uh, attempt to overthrow sitting governments. So the chemical weapons discussion obviously is, is an ongoing one in Syria. Um, we had, uh, of course, the famous uh, bombing when uh, 2017, as you said, when where Trump launches a few cruise missiles as a punishment to, yes. uh, in response to an alleged uh, chemical weapons use. Then we have um, a really interesting event in 2018. So in April 2018, um, there, is it 14th was the bombing? 
I think, or maybe late March 2018, there is an alleged chemical weapons attack uh, in Douma. Yes. Which is on the outskirts or an area outside of um, Aleppo. Now, this this area is held by a group called Jayish al-Islam, who are a Saudi setup, essentially, a Saudi-sponsored yeah. hardcore Salafist group. Now, the argument, what is alleged to have happened is that in the dying days of a really kind of full-on onslaught from the Syrian government and Russia against Jayash al-Islam to try and get rid of them from this area, from which they are lobbing bombs into Damascus and so on. Um, you know, it's literally the last couple of days of the fight. And the argument is that at this point, uh, Jayash al-Islam, um, the, the uh, Syrian government uh, launches a chemical weapons attack against this group. Um, and at the time, it was quite interesting, you, you know, you had a couple of quite high profile British military figures. This all happened over about two weeks. You had a couple of quite profile, high profile British military figures saying, hold on, I don't think this makes sense. They, yeah. were, they were literally about to be vanquished, you know, sort of the battle was basically yeah. over. We had a couple of voices saying, like, is this, does this really make sense that the Syrian government would drop chemical weapons knowing full well that America had more or less pledged to retaliate if this happened again? It um, makes no um, either tactical or strategic sense, does it? Right. So then you had, so then they had about two weeks of real kind of tension um, in which Russia more or less said, because Russian forces are what's called, you know, marbled throughout kind of Syrian forces and that, you know, absolutely embedded everywhere. And Russia said, if there is any retaliation, we will retaliate. Mm. Um, so it was, it was I, well, I certainly remember at the time feeling extremely worried that there was, that we would see a much broader conflict erupting mm. uh, there was um, if there was a response from the West. What happened in the end? So we had uh, Britain, America and France launched uh, bombs at sites, uh, you know, attacked sites in uh, Damascus. Now, one of the really interesting things that came out was that these were what um, show strikes essentially yes in the french parliament um i forget the name now of the french defense minister i should know because i i wrote about this um in french parliament the Fr french parliament was informed that russia would know in advance where these airstrikes would be mm. what happened with the airstrikes was that no one was hurt there were no people there. Everyone is evacuated. Mm. So to add to the whole affair, it was a bit of a weird kind of face saving exercise. It was a kind of virtue 
signalling. Virtue signalling with bombs. Virtue signalling with bombs. I mean, it, it was quite extraordinary. So I digress, because that's sort of slightly different. Um, now, the British state, France and America, of course, have uh, argued that there was absolutely no debate. The um, chemical weapons attack in Duma was uh, from the Syrian government. Yes. Case closed. Um, the OPCW, the Organisation for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons Use, went in shortly after the chemical attack. Well, as soon as yes. they could, once the area was made safe, because it was under Jaish al Islam. So the OPCW went in, conducted tests, and so on. But what has slowly, uh, and, and also more or less in their final report, argued that it was kind of beyond reasonable doubt that the Syrian government had committed, had uh, used chemical weapons. Now, the OPCW does not, in principle, cannot allocate blame. So yes. we've, we've had a different layer of bureaucracy set up to allocate blame, but that's a kind of different discussion. But now what has come out is a quite extraordinary tale of um, suppressed reports, obfuscation, and then up, uh, whistleblowers who have come forward to say that, um, according to the initial OPCW findings, it was very yes. doubtful that mm. those cylinders that allegedly released the chemical weapons uh, did were dropped from above, i.e. from an aeroplane helicopter, and that it seems more likely yes. that they were placed by hand. Now that obviously presents a very different uh, matter, and I'll just read you, if I may, Go ahead. Obviously cut stuff out. Um, there was a leaked engineering assessment that was leaked uh, to my colleagues, um, the Syria Working Group. And this engineering assessment was done by Ian Henderson. And this was yes. an engineering report that was suppressed. It was not included in the final OPCW report. Now, this is his final paragraph. In some... Mm. Observations at the scene of the two locations, together with subsequent analysis, suggest that there is a higher probability that both cylinders were manually placed at those two locations rather than being delivered from aircraft. Now, this report was, you know, suppressed, etc. Then it was finally leaked. After the leak, we had a quite intense campaign of um, sort of narrative managers smearing Ian Henderson. Yes. Uh, you know, this guy is just a wannabe, you know, he had nothing to do with the um, investigation, all sorts of stuff. Uh, it's subsequently... Wasn't he a very senior um, member right. of OPCW inspection teams? Hadn't he led um, missions in the past as well? So this is a very senior, very experienced official. Right, uh, absolutely. And, you know, the OPCW itself attempted to... Uh, smear him and say in the report uh, in response to this and say, you know, well, he yeah, didn't really have much to do it. Yeah, OK, he was there, but he wasn't really part of it, um, which all, again, has subsequently proven to be not 
the case. Um, mm. and there's an American uh, website which people may have heard of called the Grey Zone, run by um, run by uh, Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté, who have uh, published very recently documents again proving that Ian Henderson mm. played a key role in uh, the OPCW fact-finding mission. Um, so the whole thing has been quite extraordinary. Uh, in terms of attempts to manage the narrative, to mm. skew what actually happened in Duma, because if this, uh, if these uh, cylinders were not delivered from aircraft, as Ian Henderson said, but were placed there, if they were, not we don't know if they were. That raises the whole question of well, how did those people? Who were killed how did they die mm. you know so some really serious questions to be raised here and more to the point we bombed syria potentially at the risk of starting a very serious conflict very serious conflict on the basis of um this false narrative essentially yeah and it's what's remarkable again is that this whole um farrago um again other than the um, reporting by independent journalists yeah. like for instance the gray zone who you mentioned and a few others there's been extraordinarily little discussion of the fact that the british government was prepared to risk a uh, world war free right. on the basis of a complete fiction as it turns out Absolutely. and and the fact that they there's no again no accountability for this whatsoever no and not only that they then go on to as you said narrative management which is they then start attacking anybody in um media or academia who's actually spoken out against this calling everybody um, assad sympathizers yeah. in the yeah. same way they used to call people sadanists absolutely and, absolutely and on the day of the bombing on that day, the front page of the Times was a massive hatch, hatchet job on me, uh, my colleague Piers Robinson, Tim Hayward, um, David Miller. You know, the day in which the state bombs another, it, it, you know, it, it was it was absolutely um, extraordinary. But I just want to also, I must say, credit such credit to Peter Hitchens, who has yes. absolutely stuck with it. Um, and, you know, we've also had articles from Robert Fisk, for example, Jonathan Steele, formerly of The yes. Guardian, has also spoken out uh, and even managed to speak on radio about this. Um, so, you know, there have been a few, but I mean, again, it, you'd think in a rational world, this would be big new um but not yes um, but apparently it's not given no. and also it reminds me that when um trump um look, was looking to bomb iran over the downing of that drone yeah he apparently he, he asked the iranians for a yeah. similar arrangement which is can we bomb somewhere with nothing in it please yeah and you see because I, I remember that exactly reading that and thinking oh that's really interesting so you know, sort of, he, he wants to go for these kind of face-saving um, options. But it, it's really 
an extraordinary way of uh, yeah doing international relations. Um, well, yes, it, it's mean um, it, it also reminds me of the fact that these um, supposed chemical weapons attacks were um, both came at times when tr just after Trump's inauguration. And then when Trump was talking about a withdrawal of American forces from Syria uh, in 2018, this pops up again. Um, and certainly there seems to be at the very least some motivation for the, the, the so-called rebels to, to do something like this. Absolutely. I mean, the idea that, uh, you know, a rebel group who are obviously have ex very close links as well to external states and Americans so you know would attempt to I mean I think a false flag I won't say but you know that they would sort of mount some kind of campaign in an attempt to draw American bombing it's it's hardly it's hardly irrational you know we're no, not, it makes complete sense it, for exactly. them as um, actors in a in a in a war who have been closely aligned with the United States exactly. and Britain and France and without as you said without us they might not they they might not be able to even survive yeah. um, against the combined forces of the um, the Syrians the Russians uh, what forces Iran and Hezbollah yeah. there um, so it makes all the sense in the world for them to try and derail um, Trump's attempt to um, or talk of withdrawal which again, I think it's worth just making the comparison um, in terms of information wars. I mean, all the interpretations of what's known as Russiagate in the United States, um, it came out during the hearings for, over the impeachment. It was an extraordinary admission by, I don't know if you saw this, a, I think it was a Pentagon official who said that the president was deviating from the official foreign policy of the United States. Oh, no, I missed that. <laughs> um, and which was this was set out in the open in and to me that was that was the crux of the whole thing around the Russiagate conspiracies as Aaron Maté has reported on extensively it seemed to be that there was a for want of a better term deep state and aligned actors drive to derail any attempt by Trump to withdraw from certain areas not that Trump was ever some sort of um a piece of uh, it peace-loving peace -loving character, but he had different priorities which were not shared by various permanent state officials. Yeah. And yeah. it seems to me that that was a motivating factor in wanting to use Russiagate to essentially derail that oh, de yeah. and derail the attempt to withdraw from Syria. Yeah. No, no, I, I think that is uh, true. And I think, you know, it's uh, going on for a dip, that's a different topic. You know, I think there was some of that as well that went on with uh, Corbyn in the UK. Um, Definitely. Um, although I know that's a different, there's a, that's a different discussion. But um, no, I, I think that is definitely the case. Um, I said, I thought one of the really interesting things was this whole kind of show strike hmm. issue. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, and uh, back to British politics. So there was a whole interesting discussion at the time where in that, but in that gap between the alleged chemical weapons attack and the British, French and American bombing, 
the British government, Theresa May as Prime Minister, refused to recall Parliament. Um, yes. Absolutely refused to recall Parliament uh, to, to debate it, um, thereby, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, that I'll probably get that. Probably that's a different discussion about the uh, parliamentary authorization of war. But yeah, parliament. Well, uh, let's let's go there to a certain extent yeah. because there's, to my mind, and the the power, the war making powers of a British prime minister are quite extensive, according to um, my own readings on it. Which is that because the the power of the sovereign uh, to make war yeah. and levy taxes, so to speak, is passed almost entirely into the hands of the prime minister's office these days it's and given that the the britain's unwritten constitution unlike the united states where supposedly the president has to seek the authority of congress though they've found ways around that um numerous ways around that it's here we rely on precedent um and um legal decisions and common law essentially to establish what constitutional precedent we draw from but it seems that the the strikes symbolic or otherwise that were done in um that were done in syria were against both the vote that was taken that took place in 2013 and didn't did i don't think really had any authorization other than the prime minister at the time saying yeah we'll do this um, um, what's your take on it yeah that so so the war powers reside in a sort of slightly peculiar bit of the British constitution called royal prerogative powers. And royal prerogative is a whole set of powers, which are, it's kind of basically like everything else, you know, yes. all the stuff that's not in statute. And there's some quite key p powers, um, believe it or not, to rearrange the civil service, which is actually quite important for the state, uh, war making that remain kind of within the royal prerogative powers. But over the 90s, the noughties, and kind of particularly post-Iraq, this becomes a real debate, mm. um, and particularly lots of discussions that, look, we can't in a modern democracy, a democracy also in which there are kind of declining levels of trust and participation, we can't have mm. such an important area of policy that's outside of the democratic remit. So both parties in the noughties commit to establishing parliamentary authority over war. Mm. Doesn't really happen. Cameron, ironically, who has a habit of, you know, actually asking questions of the country he then regrets. Cameron, ironically, does stick to the Conservative Party pledge of allowing parliamentary vote over military intervention before it's happened. Because we have yes. got various ways of authorising, you know, Parliament can obviously vote after an event. You know, Parliament did vote on Iraq, but literally as it was happening, practically. Yes. Whereas what Cameron did in 2013 with the Syria vote was well before it happened. Mm. He, which is what should have, which is how it should be. He called Parliament and said, "Look, this is what we'd like to do. What do you think?" Mm. And Parliament discussed it. Brilliant, you know, excellent discussion, and said, "No, no thanks, no thanks, Dave. We're not going there." 
he also recalled Parliament in 2015 to ask Parliament to vote on joining the coalition bombing campaign against ISIS in Syria. And, yes. a, and Parliament said yes. Now, at least. Yeah, I remember that debate, yeah. So, but in principle, so what Parliament was asked in 2013 is shall we intervene against the government? Mm. Said no. In 2015, it was shall we intervene against ISIS? And Parliament, mm. yes. We know, obviously, there was the whole other hybrid war going on. But that's... Mm. Um, so these are quite sort of important developments because the idea is that questions of war, existential war, essentially, should be democratic decisions. Um, yes. And that is one of the reasons why I think we see the shift to these kind of quite intense hybrid methods because essentially there's mm -hmm. no sense that an overt intervention will be able to have legitimacy. Yes, and that's that's crucial a crucial development from the the 2000s, isn't it? Is because the, yeah. there we did have two um, heavy engagements yeah. of the, uh, the British Armed Forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. But that proved to be so difficult and unpopular exactly. and ultimately dangerous for the legitimacy of governments yeah. um, that they've moved to this um, hybridization. Exactly. And, exactly. As a uh, way of doing it. And, and then so what ha so it's re it was really interesting Then after the 2018 alleged chemical attack, as I said, May explicitly refused to recall Parliament. And yes. after the British, French and American bombing, uh, Corbyn actually called for a sort of emergency debate and so on. And it's a whole interesting story. But May explicitly refused to recall Parliament. And this was even though kind of quick polling had shown that the majority of people in Britain were against any form of retaliatory action, mm. even thinking that it was the Syrian government. Yes. You know, so even thinking worst case scenario, most people in Britain are significant, you know, were against retaliatory action. And so May refused to recall Parliament. And what she argued in the emergency debate called by Cameron, uh, sorry, called by Corbyn, was that there was, in fact, a new parliamentary convention on authorising war. Mm. But that this particular situation didn't fall within that remit for various reasons. And that, <laughs> but, but, but that, I mean, that actually, because this is sort of some of the academic work, that is a classic discussion on conventions. Yes. You know, because it, lots of people can agree a convention exists, but then the de debate happens and, well, what, <laughs> you know, is this, is this situation part of it? No, no. Um, you know, because as you said, it's unwritten, you know, we don't have, etc. Um, so that was quite an interesting discussion. Then May made several arguments in Parliament uh, during this emergency debate. And she said one of her key arguments was we couldn't recall Parliament because we had to carry this action out quickly and in secrecy. Right. If we huh. have a big debate in Parliament, everyone knows. Now, of course, 
So there are so many layers to what happened. But of course, the reality was the Russians knew anyway. Yeah. I mean, thank God, because I don't want World War Three. The Russians knew. And of course, the Russians told the Syrian government. Of course, they did. So we yeah. had a bizarre argument that Parliament can't know, but our so-called adversaries do know. Can. <laughs> can. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's yeah. good because it was better that we had this staged, managed, ridiculous thing than World War Three for sure. But the whole discussion is like, you know, there's kind of no reality to it either. Um, so we had this no stage, staged, managed attack, which is also based probably on a staged, managed chemical <laughs> attack. But beneath that chemical attack, there is a genuine question of how did the people die? You know, because if it's not, if it wasn't from, the well, same, then that's I that. Mean, yeah. So there has been there's been numerous speculations yeah. and the only thing i can well the only thing i know for certain is it's very well documented that the um the jihadists oh. rebels were committing atrocities on a regular basis oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. so if 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 they thought it would be to their advantage oh, to sure. present a load of dead bodies I don't think they'd have many much trouble justifying it to themselves to create them. No, no, I don't. I'm simply saying, you know, but in terms of what we know, we don't know. We can certainly speculate, yeah. you know, in terms of spec, in terms of, yeah, I it's would. It's speculative. It's speculative. I would certainly agree with you that, um, you know, a group such as Jaish Islam, Jaish Al Islam, or um, Al Qaeda, Syria offshoot. I mean. Yeah, you would. They they are they have committed uh, a huge number of atrocities. Um, yeah, and so to bring it bring our discussion and wrap it around. Then talking about the British government, yeah. we, we've I think we've demonstrated in our discussion here pretty clearly that the British government's role in Syria is integral to the uh, both the creation of that war and its maintenance I, as well. I've, I would That's... say I I would say so absolutely. And I said I I think this is as much our war as the Yemen war. Um, the thought, the extent yeah. of our involvement is absolutely astonishing. And I think one of the really one one of the the, the media narrative and the political narrative has been consistently. Look at Syria. This is the problem with non-intervention. <laughs> you know, it's been this argument that we haven't done anything. And yet this absolutely turns reality on its head in that Syria has been the most internationalised war, I think, mm. um, even more so, I would say, than Iraq in a way, you know, because of the changing ways in which states are interfering. But um, no, I'm more so because Iraq was straightforward, you know, external military yeah. intervention. Yeah, Di directly and without the use of proxy forces in uh, the initial period anyway. Exactly. Uh, and, 
accountability is all there. I mean, people haven't really been accountable, but, you know, we know what happened. Yeah, and we know who made the decisions. Um, exactly. With this, yeah. it's um, it's um, a story inside a story inside another story. Absolutely. So the, absolutely, absolutely. the 2018 um, staged bombings to a potentially staged attack yeah. um, probably yeah. saw the war quite well from the perspective <laughs> of uh, the British government's involvement. Yeah. Um, but but it, the, the other thing I wanted to, yeah. to ask your opinion on was, that because of the the key role that the British government has been revealed to have played in the uh, in in supporting the Syrian rebels, yeah. though it should also be emphasised that a lot of these rebels are imports from other countries. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And could it be argued then that the British government has legal culpability for crimes committed by its proxies? Well, I guess, you know, if we were talking about um, Russia or Iran, we'd certainly make that argument. Yeah. But um, as as Robin Cook, I think it was Robin Cook, at the time of the establishment of um, uh, the criminal court, you know, wasn't there a sort of famous thing he said in Parliament, was it 99 even or 2001, that don't worry, it's not for us. You know, there's... (laughs) <laughs> it's just for the artificial enemies. Exactly. So well, that reminds me of um, was it Mike Pompeo made a direct threat of invading the Hague if any Americans were yes. taken there? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's um, yeah, he's very I mean, much the Trump administration, very much like a cast of characters from The Sopranos, basically. Yeah, but I mean, certainly, yes, yeah, certainly, I would, I would argue. We have a huge responsibility uh, for what has happened in, we bear a huge amount of responsibility for what has happened in Syria. Uh, and again, if we had a media system that functioned differently, this would be a big discussion. I mean, I think yeah. all, one of the problems is, I think, in the British state, well, I think we do inquiries very nicely, but it always comes out quite a bit later. You know, and it sort of becomes a historical discussion. Whether mm. thinks of Chilcot, for example, again, pretty pretty good report, but it's a sort of antique. Yes, it's all uh, retrospective. Very. Um, everybody involved has already retired. This is this is what happened then. Oops, you know. Um, so I guess if this if there is ever an accounting about Syria, it will be a similar. Yeah. Thing. Well, certainly, um, it's. I think for both, we've discussed Syria and Libya today, and certainly Cameron should bear a lot of responsibility, as much as Blair does for Iraq, quite yeah. rightly. Um, also, uh, Theresa May it's, has a case to answer when it comes to her actions over the allowing of various jihadists to travel to and from both Libya and Syria. And, of course, Boris Johnson, who was uh, both Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister. So, um, again, clear responsibility there. And certainly, I'm I'm going to, uh, for the the channel in the future, we're going to explore the the Corbyn element there, which you did mention, Tara, because his long-term political commitments against um, British and American interventions 
certainly if you dig down beneath beneath the top level stories, the, the fake anti-Semitism scandal and other stuff, when you actually read into the think tank world and the foreign policy establishment in Washington and London, what they were really afraid of was, I think, him getting in the way or putting a spanner in the works for operations just like this and refusing to go along with it. I think that seems to have been a really big motivating factor in their wanting to see him gone. Uh, would you say, from your, from your knowledge, is that a fair judgment? Yeah, I, I think, I think too, that there was a significant, yeah, the, uh, the, for want of a better word, as we said, the deep state, although it's a slightly yeah. problematic term, but it's not an entirely nonsense term either. Um, yeah, I think certainly there were some things that Corbyn said about British foreign policy, um, not just about uh Israel, but about British foreign policy more broadly. Yes. You know, that did cause a lot of uh, concern, both, as you say, in, in Britain and America. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. Again, that's a, probably a bigger a discussion. Yeah, that, I'd need a whole day for that one. <laughs> yeah, and there are obviously people who have been looked into this uh, quite a lot. But yeah, no, I think so. Yeah. So... I think that um, it's been what we've had today, Tara, is a very valuable discussion about the culpability of, Brit of the British government for things that I think most, again, most MPs probably don't understand, other than maybe a few, and certainly most of the, the population, the voting population, either don't know about or have the wrong impression of, because our media culture is one where they carry the government's water to use an american yeah. Yeah. they uncritically accept the narratives given to them by the foreign office and the ministry of defense and 10 downing street and critical voices that were even there 10 to 20 years ago have been pushed out to the margins of the internet where of course they're now branded russian propaganda and fake news yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, so, so uh, and again, I think it's been quite extraordinary post Iraq. You've really, you know, rather than the media getting more teeth, mm. it has simply, uh, and uh, you know, for a number of reasons, including changes obviously in the way people consume news and so on, the media has become even more supine in terms of uh, reporting on foreign policy. And I can't yes. see that changing particularly. No, no, not unless not 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 unless we uh, uh, find find a way of overturning a uh, hundred years of corporate media hegemony in the next few days. Um, but we're trying, we're trying. Um, so, uh, Tara McCormack, lecturer in international relations at the University of Leicester. I thank you for your time today. Thank it's been you. a very good discussion, and um, hopefully, have you back on the show at some point in the future. Thank you very much, Alex. ISIS is honoring President Obama. He is the founder of ISIS. He's the founder of ISIS. Okay? He's the founder. He founded ISIS. And I would say the co-founder would be Crooked Hillary Clinton. Co-founder, Crooked Hillary Clinton. You're the hide behind walls.
Yeah. 